Welcome to Judaism Demystified, a podcast for the perplexed. We are joined by Yirmiyahu Danzig. You may know him as That Semite on Instagram and other social media platforms. Yirmiyahu is an activist for Jewish and indigenous rights. He is the director of content and education for the Chirut movement in the World Zionist Organization and the former outreach coordinator for Stand With Us San Diego. He served as a squad commander in a counterterrorism unit of the Israeli Border Police. He has a BA in Political Science, Homeland Security, and Public Diplomacy from the IDC Herzliya. Yirmiyahu is a content creator and digital educator specializing in Jewish diversity, history, and identity. His roots in the old Yishuv and the Caribbean inform his social media activism, where he uses English, Hebrew, and Arabic to reach diverse audiences. He's currently a digital educator for Jewish Unpacked. Without further ado, Yirmiyahu Danzig. Thank you for joining the Judaism Demystified podcast. You've made a name for yourself as that Semite on social media. Can you tell our audience a bit about your background and what your mission is? Of course. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, I have to say that when I uh, saw the name Judaism Demystified, it immediately uh, piqued uh, my interest because um, I myself come from a background where I've constantly been dabbling in uh, mystical Judaism versus rational Judaism, and I've always been more on the side of the uh, Rambam approach. So uh, when I looked into uh, your content, I was very excited to come on here. Uh, I think we'll probably be very, uh, you know, like-minded kindred spirits when it comes to a lot of these uh, more essential philosophical questions about the, the purpose of Judaism and uh, the direction the Jewish people should be going. Uh, but um, as for how I got involved in uh, social media sphere as that Semite, really it started uh, in real life for me, as we call that, or as we say, IRL. Um, so basically, I've been involved in issues related to Jewish rights, uh, racism, anti-Semitism, both in the United States uh, uh, and in Israel since I was very young. Um, I come from a, a family in which my father, uh, an Israeli, was very involved in Israel issues and in, uh, in Zionist identity in the United States, um, but also with issues related to uh, more marginalized Jewish communities, particularly in the North American setting, uh, with my mother being a Jew from the Caribbean. Um, and I constantly found myself uh, in a space in which I was telling the story of the Jewish people, telling the story of, uh, of marginalized communities within the Jewish uh, sphere uh, to various audiences, Jewish and non-Jewish alike. Um, and um, after almost a decade living in Israel um, and being an activist on the ground, uh, dealing with issues related to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, uh, you know, going abroad and, and, and teaching on uh, university campuses about Zionism, about uh, Jewish identity, um, I decided to take my activism onto the social media sphere because a lot of my friends that were already very active there told me that this is where it's happening, right? Do you have the ability to maybe speak to a uh, to a classroom with a few hundred people or an auditorium with a few thousand, but on social media, you have the ability to speak to hundreds of thousands, if not millions. Um, and so for the past couple of years, I've been uh, very invested in uh, taking a lot of uh, my perspectives, ideas, ideologies, and translating it into social media content. And the reason why I decided to choose the name That Semite is because uh, often I would find uh, anti-Semites, whether they were from the uh, Palestinian persuasion or the white supremacist persuasion or the Hebrew Israelite persuasion using the refrain, I can't be uh, anti-Semitic because I am a Semite or you're not the only Semitic people, right? 
And uh, and I decided to say, okay, yeah, I understand that that's something you guys like to say, but I'm that Semite that people are talking about when they use Amazing. these anti tropes. Yeah, so, I mean, we're going to get to that topic later, um, especially with uh, Candace Owens. She, she famously said something about that. But uh, I want to understand also, like, there's many terms used for Jews where people say Hebrews, Israelites, um, Jews, like, we're, are we a culture, race, religion, or all of the above? So can you tell us a little bit about that perspective? Sure. Well, first, I want to draw people's attention to the fact that, you know, up until relatively recent history, the terms Hebrew and Israelite and Jew were used quite interchangeably, even in the Anglo context. Even the United States, for example, the uh, Union for Reform Judaism used to be, if I'm mistaken, the, the Hebrew Union of Reform Judaism, because this was a term that was understood. It referred to people that are either described as Jewish or Israelite. Israelitish was a term that was used in a lot of different contexts. Um, and basically because of the fact that Hebrew, Israelite, and Jewish slash Judean are terms that have been used uh, synonymously to describe the descendants of the people of Israel in the various places of their diaspora. Um, now, this gets a little bit more complicated with the, the fact that not everybody who is a Hebrew or an Israelite is also a Judean or a Jew, uh, but for the vast majority of people that identify as Jewish today, um, they either came from a context in the United States or in other places of the English-speaking world where they use the terms Hebrew or Israelite to describe their identity just as much as they use the term Jewish, or they lived in a country in which the word that they used to describe their identity was probably Hebrew or Israelite. For example, in Italy to this day, in Italian to this day, you, you don't use the term Jewish to describe Jews in Italy. They use the term Hebreo, right? Hebrew. Uh, likewise, the term in most Slavic languages for uh, someone who is Jewish is Yivrei or something of that nature, um, which is a, uh, an evolution of the term Hebrew. Um, so these are the various terminologies that have been used to describe our, our peoplehood throughout. And they refer to a specific uh, evolution and stage in our historical development. Yeah, and I find that people use these interchangeably to kind of under, undermine our identity. Um, it would be like, oh, you're, you call yourself Jews, but really Jews are, you know, whatever. They're, they're Israelites or all that. So, um, you know, that leads me to something that's happening in America right now. There's like this... Um, challenge to the Jewish identity. This is an old thing that people are doing. I'm not an Ashkenazi Jew, but they'll, you've heard the Khazar theory that the Jews come from that and, and the Ashkenazi Jews come from that. And, you know, we see with like Kanye West and Kyrie Irving and the Black Hebrew Israelites um, that they attack our identity. They say, we're not the real Jews. And a lot of Jews don't know how to how to respond to these anti-Semitic tropes because it's never really been something that we faced. It's never been like, it's it's always been the given that like you're you're there are black Jews there are you know Persian Jews Syrian Jews what is this we we're we're just not used to that so how do you respond to those things and also um, you know we see um, we see that people are like Candace Owens for example she is like you said she mentioned um, being anti-Semitic you can't say you're anti-Semitic because we're not the only Semite. So this there's another way of like from the right, for example, that you see these kind of arguments. So what, what would you say to these, both of these kinds of attacks? Well, first I want to contextualize where this is coming from uh, in like the broad scale of, of Jewish history. And because I think that it's very interesting that you highlighted that for a lot of Jews to feel very blindsided by these types of accusations, why are they hyper-focusing on the fact that we're identifying as Jewish or Judah or Judean when there's 
12 tribes, what does that have to do with anything? Nobody was making that claim uh, that we represent all of the 12 tribes. Um, and the reason comes out of this very specific racial context of the United States in that Jews in the United States in the 1800s and in the early 1900s were trying to establish themselves as a people. A lot of people fleeing uh, Europe, whether they were Sfaradim, leaving uh, the Iberian Peninsula, leaving places in which Jews had fled from the Spanish Inquisition to the what became the United States, or was later Ashkenazim, fleeing pogroms and then the Holocaust uh, and settling the United States. There was this negotiation with the racial dynamics and structures that existed in North America. And one of the assertions very early on, and this came from the reform movement, but it didn't stay there, was that we are Hebrews, um, ba we're basically Europeans with a Hebrew religion, right? Or Americans of a Jewish religion. And so the fact that Jewish identity, which up until that point was far more complex um, and far more layered in being both ethnic and national and spiritual and religious, then became relegated to religion because that made it comfortable for an American society, which was developed along these racial lines, almost like a caste system. Um, it made Jews more acceptable, more palatable. And so a lot of people that were perhaps Jews of color or people of mixed ancestry, people who were trying to understand the Bible in their various ways, whether they were Christians or Muslims, looked at the, at the narrative of the Tanakh, of the Hebrew Bible, looked at Jews that were saying, we're Jews only of a religion. And they say, okay, that means that you're something different, right? Because here clearly the people that are being spoken of in the Tanakh are the full embodiment of nationality and tribe and ethnicity and religion. And so enter into the picture Jews with a strong identity, uh, whether there is some type of, you know, Torah observant Jew or Jew with a, a strong sense of a Zionist identity, of a nationalist identity, and, and which basically describes in various ways all of the Jews of, of, uh, of the exiles from Sfarad and also of the Mizrah of the, of the East. And they say, what does this have to do? What are you talking about? Jews of only a religion. We've never said that. We've always said that we're part of this, you know, this continuation of the nation of Israel, which has a religious aspect, but also has an ethnic aspect, has a tribal aspect, as well as a universalist aspect. Um, and so the fact that many Jews don't have a full appreciation for the complexity of our identity is then used as a point of vulnerability for anti-Semites to then fill in that vacuum. And so the type of rhetoric we heard from recently from Kanye West, or the, or the rapper formerly known as Kanye West, um, and, and the, the movie which was shared by Kyrie Irving and somebody like Candace Owens just trying to use it as, you know, some political ammunition is basically the fact that a lot of Jews living in America are still trying to figure out how they express themselves in the American uh, ethnic, religious, uh, political dynamic. Because in a society which says you're either a religion or you're a race, um, and Jews are, not, are neither one of those things exclusively, it becomes very easy to pick apart that identity. Um, and so this is what we're seeing with some of these more ideological groups like radical factions of Hebrew Israelites, um, like the Nation of Islam, and like people that are just trying to, you know, stoke the fires with the, you know, uh, polarized politics like Candace Owens. So how do you, how would you, let's say, respond to like Nation of Islam or, you know, the 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 um, Black Hebrew Israelites who, who will make these claims, let's say the most famous one is that, I've heard a Farrakhan say this, that the, the, the Sephardim are the real, actually at least he acknowledges that, uh, but but uh, like they say that the Ashkenazim are, are from the Khazars and they're not real Jews and all that. What? How do you respond to that? Obviously, you know, um, the data is out there, but 
let's say I'm a black, uh, black Hebrew Israelite, what would you say to me? So first thing is I would want to understand why it is that somebody feels like they need to be saying that, right? Because we have to understand whenever anti-Semites are coming with some type of uh, libel about the Jewish people, are advocating some trope about the Jewish people, it's important for us to understand what is that play, what role is that playing. So I want, for example, the, the PLO used this trope forever. They they were the ones that found Arthur Kessler's book, The 13th Tribe, which advocates, you know, historically the Khazar theory for the origin of Ashkenazi Jews. And they started taking it out and saying, hey, the Israelis aren't actually Semites. They're all descendants of this Turkic people that converted, you know, in the eighth century. And that's what, and so therefore they have no claim to the land of Israel. But it's important for us when we were debunking that to be like, hey, you're trying to say the Jewish people don't have a claim to sovereignty and to equal rights even in the land of Israel because they're not actually from this land, right? That's why they're motivated to do it. So when the nation of Islam, when Farrakhan is saying that or a radical Hebrew Israelite is saying that, it's because they're trying to answer some type of theological slash political question. And for people that convert to Hebrew Israelism or are raised in Hebrew Israelism or people or someone like Farrakhan who brought that ideology into the nation of Islam, they're asking, why are we suffering, right? The, the, the film that Kyrie Irving shared, the first opening scene is basically a series of a lot of different versions of the question, why are we suffering? Why is God doing this to us? Why are we disproportionately killed by police? Why are we, you know, thrown in jail in disproportionate numbers? Why, you know, are we uh, living on the welfare? So all these different questions of why is this happening to us? And then he's, his answer to that question, it's the same answer that Farrakhan gives, is the same answer that the, the uh, Ron Dalton Jr. who made the documentary that Kyrie Irving shared uh, gives. And that's that because we are being punished by God for not living according to the Torah. Right. This is a very similar uh, answer that a lot of uh, Haredi Jews give to why did the Holocaust happen? They say, why did the Holocaust happen? Satmar, for example, I'm not going to use a, a fringe group like Atulikata, but Satmar, which is a large Jewish community, says this is because we didn't hold up our end of the bargain. We didn't do we didn't follow the Torah. And so Hashem punished us. Right. So likewise, these groups said we didn't hold up. We are Israelites originally. We didn't hold up our end of the bargain. And now God is punishing us. And so other groups said, okay, yeah, God's punishing us, just like he punished Israelites all over the world. Israelites in Europe, Israelites in, in Spain, Israelites in North Africa, in the Middle East, in India, in Persia, all these different places. But then some groups said, wait, if, there, if this is what's happening all over the world to the descendants of the children of Israel who are suffering in exile and diaspora, why are the Jews that look a certain way, that are pale-skinned in our country, why aren't they suffering like us? And this then feeds into the macro structure of anti-Semitism that exists, because we know that the under the floorboards of Western civilization, you have certain types of bigotries. And one of those from the beginning has been anti-Semitism. This idea that the Jewish people are a, this wandering nation that has uh, left their homeland and now has to be the middleman for us. You know, they can be the, the, the tax collector, they can be, you know, the, the court Jew, but they're constantly have to be at the, at the, at the doing the bidding of the ruling class. Um, and so people like Farrakhan and people like a radical Hebrew Israelite, they're pointing at the fact that the Jew is unique he stands out in a certain sense, but also he's not at the very bottom. And they said, if they're not at the very bottom of, of, of this, then why is it that they are succeeding relatively to us? And so there comes the protocols, the elders of Zion, and all these classic anti-Semitic tropes, which gives them a convenient answer 
it's because they're manipulative. It's because they're controlling. It's because they are conspiring. And so these are the reasons that they gave, right? So this is just the backdrop of why psychologically these, this type of anti-Semitic trope is appealing to somebody like Farrakhan or somebody like a radical Hebrew Israelite that espouses these ideas. So the first thing is to answer very clearly, right, from a perspective just of history. The Ashkenazi Jews already existed in Europe by the time some of the Khazar nobility converted to Judaism, right? And yeah. so, so the first thing is the historical argument, right? Because a lot of these different groups, whether it's Farrakhan or whether it's, you know, a radical Hebrew Israelite uh, leader, will try and use history. They'll look to certain textbooks, they'll look to certain, uh, you know, uh, contemporary scientific studies to prove their point. So the first thing is debunking that. And we know without a shadow of a doubt that Ashkenazi Jews existed already in Western Europe uh, for hundreds of years, for centuries before any Khazar converted to Judaism um, in the Turkic steppes. Uh, and, and, and part of the reason why we know this is because the Yiddish language, the Yiddish language is, is mostly a, a creole of Germanic dialects uh, and Aramaic slash Hebrew, which is known as Lashon HaKodesh or Lashon Kodesh in Yiddish. Um, and so this already existed as a functioning dialect, as a functioning Creole language and culture and identity for centuries before there was a conversion. So the extent that uh, Khazars even remained Jewish after the collapse of their kingdom in the 11th century, they were integrated into a broader Ashkenazi and Sephardic uh, milieu and culture and identity. And if you want to highlight on the fact that there were certainly Jews or people that converted and joined the Jewish collective in Europe, whether it was Sephardic Jews or Ashkenazi Jews, the same thing happened everywhere else in the world, right? Everywhere else where there were Israelites, including in West Africa, including in South Africa, there were local uh, groups that formed the initial heart of that diaspora community. And then there were local people that converted and joined the fold and married the, the locals and then with time became part of the collective. So that's just the historical aspect. And there's the second part, which yeah, there's DNA, obviously. Yeah. That's yeah. I don't know if you're gonna get to that, but yeah. So look, so I'll get to the DNA in a second, but first I just want to say because the second part, and this is perhaps the more uh difficult issue, is the theological aspect, right? The inability to see Jewish people as having dealt with some of the same pains and complexities that other diaspora and exilic groups have had to deal with, right? Jewish identity is a dynamic one. It's one as which has constantly been changing. It's one which is constantly wrestling with theological questions, with questions of cultural continuity. And decisions were made in some communities which weren't made in others, right? We're, you know, this is a, a podcast that deals with rationalist perspectives on Judaism, right? And so a lot of that is about this internal struggle of how do we how do we pass the Torah on from generation to generation, right? What are what is the main message of our culture, and and what is the main message of uh, of our spiritual tradition, and what we need to be doing to constitute ourselves and to continue into the future, and to and to create a, a better reality. And so, once uh, a lot of people that at least not the perhaps Farrakhan wouldn't accept this explanation, perhaps a card carrying member of a radical Hebrew Israelite organization won't accept that explanation, but people that are vulnerable to accepting those ideas. Once they're able to see the humanity and the complexity of Jewish history and identity, it's, it's very difficult to put us into this kind of, oh, they're all converts who have just usurped this identity and, you know, are trying, are living as Jews, but really aren't. Um, and this is a continuation of a long tradition 
of, uh, of Christian uh, European ideas, which situate Jews as the seed of Satan, as, yeah. fake, as fake Jews, um, and people that are usurpers. And this all fits into this broader uh, goal of superseding Judaism, of, of passing Judaism and passing on the mantle of God to the church in all of its various forms. Um, but just a short note on DNA. You know, I, I do, I tend to stay away from the DNA arguments because DNA is, is such a complex, it's such a complex study and we're constantly discovering new things about it. Um, and unfortunately, you know, there, as, even though we do have an abundance of genetic research, which, which clearly ties uh, the, all the large Jewish communities to Levantine origins, including to Palestinian Arabs and Samaritans, etc., there's always this random test, you know, this random study that people can, you know, throw out there and say, oh, this is my trump card because it says, you know, that there was some, you know, random test that connected Ashkenazi Jews to, you know, Turkic peoples or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and then because I'm not a scientist by practice, I tend not to use that argument um, because my focus is more cultural anthropology, history uh, and identity. So I want to get back into what you just mentioned. You said that um you know in christianity you have like the synagogue of satan and whether you can take it's taken out of context or it's not properly understood it's very obvious that the early church were clearly anti-jews and i mean they they painted us as christ killers as the killers of god so that's something kind of like impossible to shake off that kind of um you know uh, blood libel and do you feel that the fact that it's kind of baked into like the anti-Semitism is kind of baked into Christianity. I wouldn't even say Islam, but into Christianity. Do you feel that that's something that we can actually overcome? So first I want to say that absolutely the early church was anti-Semitic, but when we look at these specific anti-Semitic verses, or should I should say verses that have then been used to advocate an, uh, an anti-Semitic reading of uh, religious texts, um, we have to put that in the context of the early Christians. And the early Christians were mostly Jews, right? So if we look at this verse, which is used in Revelations, the most, it's probably the favorite verse of, uh, of Farrakhan and, and the favorite verse of some of these radical Hebrew Israelite groups, because it was a, a favorite verse of the church during the Middle Ages. And that's from the book of Revelations, uh, the final book of the New Testament, or what I prefer to call the Greek Testament. Um, and this verse, I believe it's Revelations 3, 9, says, behold, those that say there are Jews that are not, I know their works, um, that they are the synagogue of Satan. And something of that, of that nature. Mm -hmm. And the original context of the book of Revelations has to be understood in the context of the early Christians, which were mostly Jews. And it was said in the context, or written in the context in which there were the early followers of Jesus, who were mostly Jewish, having a beef with the rest of the Jewish world who was saying, no, we're not going to accept this man as our Messiah. And so then they're kind of making a, a stab, you know, a jab at the Jewish community and saying, oh, you guys, you guys say you're Jews, but you're not, right? Because if you're really Jews, you would be, you know, believing in, in, in this guy as, as your Messiah, right? Mm -hmm. And so all of the anti-Semitic verses of the New Testament have to be understood in that context, and that there was this internal wrestling going on between the small group of the Jewish followers of Jesus um, and the broader Jewish community, which didn't accept him. And then as the church started becoming more and more Gentile, as more and more Greeks started to occupy these spaces, those verses took on a, a whole new meaning because now it wasn't Jews reading these verses in the book of Revelations. 
you know, which also talks about the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's a, it's a very, it's very clearly written by somebody who's Jewish. Mm-hmm. Um, all of a sudden they read these, these verses and like, it's, it's talking about somebody else. It's talking about somebody that, that the only thing they might know about that person is that they, uh, they, they started a whole revolt against the, the Greco-Roman civilization. And so now it, those verses are being colored with a whole different, uh, a whole different spirit. Um, and so because of that, these verses and the whole posture of the West towards the Jews is something which is very difficult for people to remove themselves from. You know, even in the sense that a lot of Jews that are not very well, uh, are not very familiar with, you know, Hebrew thinking, with the Talmudic way of understanding things and, uh, and, and the, the perspective of the writers of the Tanakh, right? What, what it is that they were thinking and what it is that they were feeling in the, in the cultural context that they came from, it's very difficult to take yourself out of a Western bias, to take yourself out of a Western worldview. And that Western worldview is inextricably connected to Christian thinking. So in a sense, it's almost the most difficult thing to say, to identify these anti-Semitic tropes and structures, which color the way that we, we see the Jewish people. And I'm talking about this from the perspective of, of non-Jews, uh, but we have to do it, right? We have to be engaged. We have to demand from non-Jews to identify these biases, to identify these superstructures, which are, are coloring their thinking about the Jewish people. Um, and it starts with the most basic thing of, of acknowledging that Jews are, are people. Right? Jews are people too. Right? We're not an idea. Right? We're not this, this sacred divine ideal from your holy book, right? which is the way that a lot of Christians and Muslims look at us, right? that we were this chosen people of God, the chosen people of Israel, and then we betrayed the, the mission of God, and as a result of that, we're cursed. And, and, and the fact that we're you know, living flawed in human lives just like everybody else is somehow uh, a testimony to the fact that we're, we're cursed by God. Right? And we can see this expressed by the church, and we can see this expressed uh, by Muslim societies as well. So we have to demand from people, whether they're believing Christians or believing Muslims, to see the, uh, to see us as, as people, right? And seeing us as people means seeing us as, as flawed individuals, um, just like they are. And the Torah itself is very much highlighting this fact that we're flawed, and our leaders are flawed, and human beings are flawed. We don't have this idea of sainthood and, you know, perfect people like other religions do. Um, I think also... Um, one one point that I wanted to make um, regarding, you know, Christianity, for example, is has the Christians have seen, you know, the success of Jewish people. So all of those kind of it was very easy to say, you know, look at these Jews, they're cursed everywhere they go, everywhere they touch it. It always turns out bad for them. But then all of a sudden the state of Israel comes and you see the fulfillment of the, the prophecy in, in Devarim and Deuteronomy. The Jewish people are, were scattered from across all the nations and they came back into one place. And now we see how successful this place is. So many Christians have actually started to open their eyes to see that, you know what, the Jews aren't cursed. It's actually, this was fulfillment of the Torah and they were meant to be touched by every nation and touch every nation and then come back to their place. And so hopefully, I'm, my hope is that people will actually start, like you said, see things in context, in the proper context, and understand that, you know, this is all by design. Well, I, I absolutely agree. And uh, and I share uh, your hope for the future. But I think the only way that we can contribute to that future um, is by being in dialogue with non-Jews, whether they're Christians or Muslims or Hebrew Israelites. Because in the void of a strong Jewish voice, 
an informed and educated Jewish voice providing uh, a framework for understanding uh, what's happening in history, somebody else can just as easily come in and fill in that void with their own answer. So, for example, when the church had to deal with the fact that the Jewish people are, have returned to history, they were returning back to our homeland from four corners, and we returned to Jewish sovereignty and the Jewish economy and all these different things that we're seeing and, and taking for granted often in the land of Israel today, you had to, you had to have a, a number of responses, right? And we, a lot of us are familiar with the evangelical response or the most popular evangelical response was to say, you know what, maybe we got the Jewish people wrong. Maybe we misunderstood the purpose of the Jewish people in history. And really God does want to preserve them as, you know, an amsegula of a, of a chosen nation or a, or a nation apart uh, for the goal of, you know, doing something for all of humanity. Other groups have come up with different answers, right? There's some groups that are still adamant in, in not seeing the, the purpose of the Jewish people and not seeing anything positive in the return of Israel to history through the state of Israel. Um, and those, and that's from uh, Protestant uh, Presbyterian groups all the way to Catholics, right? Which are still kind of, you know, not taking an official position on how they see Israel or the Mormon church, which is also doing something similar. When it comes to Hebrew Israelites, and because I'm just bringing it up because we just talked about them, you know, there's a number of ways you could see about it. some Hebrew Israelites are like, oh yeah, okay, this makes sense, right? Maybe, maybe this is part of this broader you know, Israelite experience throughout the world and and we need to, you know, get into tune of what's happening in, in the land of Israel, the state of Israel. And that's why there's Hebrew Israelites living in Israel and many of them serve in the army and, uh, and uh, you know, join the, the Jewish collective by converting to Judaism or just, you know, uh, being the best Israelis that they can be. Um, but other groups in trying to come up with a theological answer for a theological question, they say, hmm, if they're returning and by themselves, right, through man-made kind of uh, uh, machinations, then maybe they're not really Israel. Maybe they're they're Edom, they're Edom, they're Esau, you know. And and this is kind of the the the, the latest iteration of the Roman Empire trying to replace Israel, um, or Esau trying to replace Israel uh, by creating some type of country there before it's time for the true troops of Israel to come back. And likewise, I'm seeing some of uh, the theologians in the Muslim world coming up with their own answers for that. Right, because the, the Quran has its concept of the, the land of Israel having a special relationship with the children of Israel. And there's specific references within the Quran to uh, a exile and a return. And so what some imams and some Muslim theologians can look at this and say, oh, maybe we should we should revise the way we understood the relationship between Allah, between God and the children of Israel. But other groups, and this is some, this is an idea which has become very popular on the Palestinian street in the past couple of years, is to say this was all from the will of, of God, because in Islam, everything is from the will of God. Um, and the reason why this has happened, that he's brought the children of Israel from all over the world back to the land of Israel, is to make an example of them. And that the ultimate destruction that the Jewish people are going to face this time is going to be um followed by the ultimate success and victory of islam of the ummah and so this is why we have to be engaged in these conversations we shouldn't just allow for them to just go on without any type of you know jewish pushback or jewish discourse you know and, and far too many of us are in this mode of like you know we just need to worry about what's going on with us and then everything else will fall into place but but we can't be a light into the nations unless we have a relationship with the nations you know, I think also 
listen, our history forced us to be a certain, act a certain way, kind of not trust the other. And I think that our, our problem starts from within that among Jews, we don't even see eye to eye. We don't talk to each other. You know, I, I have a podcast about, you know, Orthodox Judaism and, you know, a lot of people don't like the fact that I would talk to someone who's conservative or somebody who's reform or so. And I have no problem with that. I think I want to talk to Karaites. I want to talk to non-Jews. I want to. And there are some who just feel like, you know, that's crossing the boundary. Um, so I think we need to work on that intra-faith dialogue as well. You know, just coming to understand each other um, before we can try to understand everybody else. Um, but I definitely um, wanted to get into a point that you made you know, earlier, you mentioned the fact that there's some kind of jealousy, you know, like where, where we were after the Holocaust and how we've become kind of successful in America. Um, I think the fact that we're kind of like disproportionately represented in many fields, you know, in fields of entertainment, in, um, you know, where the, let's say 20% of Nobel Prize winners are Jewish and we'll make up less than 1% of the world population. Um, and there's all these different things that people can point to for like, you know, the classic anti-Semitic tropes that the Jews run everything, Jews run the banks. And if you look in these places, you know, you, you'll see that a lot of Jews are successful. So um, I want to know what you attribute that to. And I also want to point out that like, for example, what Kanye West said that I just want to, you know, because I, I want to clarify this point. A lot of people make the mistake and say, oh, you see Kanye West or Kyrie Irving, when they spoke out, they got punished. And, you know, like they, they they're, they're, attacks were actually based on some type of truth. In reality, you know, what Kanye West did was he was worth, when he was working with Jews, he was worth, I don't know, a few billion dollars. And then when he turned his back against Jews, he actually lost connections to Balenciaga, which is not owned by Jews, Chase Bank, which is not owned by a Jew, you know, and all other, you know, Adidas is not owned by a Jew. So nobody's really paying attention to that aspect of it. Kyrie Irving, he turns his back on the Jewish people, but really he upset his owner, of the owner of his team who is not Jewish. Um, and that's a point that I think a lot of people are not paying attention to. They're not paying attention to the fact that, okay, when you actually look at the details, it's not the Jews who are causing the problems. So um, I want to first, I want to understand from your perspective, um, why why are Jews so disproportionately represented in so many fields that, that we excel everywhere, almost everywhere we go? So there's there's basically there's two issues there. Number one is like how we respond to anti-Semitism and how how society how our how American society basically responds to anti-Semitism and whether or not that's the best approach and and how it should be understood by the general public. And the other question is why are, are Jews so dis disproportionately represented and successful? Um, so I'll deal with the the the, the second part because I think that that's first of all it, it gives a framing to the general issue. Number one is the things that we know, which are so sacred and essential in Jewish uh, identity, and these are the things that have, have allowed us to preserve ourselves as a people for thousands of years. It's the aspect of us which emphasizes the family structure. It's the aspect of Jewish identity which emphasizes cultural continuity, um, literacy, and emphasis on education. These are things that we can't take for granted today. I'm talking about in like contemporary society in the West, but it's something that we certainly could not take for granted for the majority of human history, where the majority of the populace mm -hmm. was illiterate and the, specifically the ability to read and to speak and read in multiple languages, which was, a, which was a basic feature for the majority of Israelite populations throughout the planet, gave us a strategic edge. 
And more importantly, it made us a strategic tool in the hands of the empires and the kingdoms and the governments where we were sojourning. And that's a very key point because these various governments or kings or empires noticed that all of a sudden you have a population that has the ability to navigate and to transport uh, knowledge and assets. For example, when Iberia went from the hands of the Moors back to the Europeans, the Jews that were living there throughout that time period, they were fluent in Arabic, they were probably fluent in some Berber dialects, they were fluent in the Castilian Spanish, they were fluent in Hebrew, and they had the ability, because they were writing these and translating these documents for themselves and for others, they had the ability to, to, to take this information and to give it to the new rulers. Um, and this level of education and literacy made it so that in basically every single country and land in which we lived, and this was true in Zimbabwe with the Lemba, just as much as true for Sephardic Jews in the Iberian Peninsula, we became this middleman, right? The, you had the elite of the society in the way that the structure of the society was created, and then you had the, the masses, um, the masses of the people which would be considered the underclass, and the Jews were the in-between, right? They did the bidding of the government, and we were allowed a certain amount of autonomy, we were allowed to, uh, to, uh, to get a certain amount of success as a result of that autonomy and freedom that we were given, as long as we did the bidding. The problem with that is that the underclass of the society, as, this is, as the society defines it, only sees the Jews doing the bidding of the government. And so it's very easy for the government to then scapegoat the Jews and say, okay, yeah, we understand that there's these broader problems in society, but it's not our fault. It's the Jews that are doing it. It's the Jews that are responsible for it. And maybe we have it to a certain extent, but they're the, they're the most guilty uh, actors when it comes to these issues. So in feudal Europe, it was the serfs lashing out against the Jews for this unjust structure of a feudal society, of a lordship society, of a monarchy, which abused the masses economically so that they can live a good life. In the colonial reality of the new world, the quote unquote new world, whether it was Australia, South Africa, West Africa, South, North America, this colonial structure, which was, which was defined by racism, it was a very similar thing happened. Jews were coming into this space. They were leaving countries in which they were not considered white in any way, shape or form. But now because they, operate, they, they operated in a way in which they could be both seen as non-white, but also as white in various aspects, they were a very convenient, uh, or we were a very convenient middleman in North America and South America and the Caribbean. And so as the economic structures of countries that were established in these places were created, they were created along these lines. And so a lot of people in the United States, when they would look at Jews coming up basically in the same exact structure, as they were, they would watch how after the civil rights movement, right, African-Americans and Latinos and indigenous Americans were fighting alongside Jews for a lot of the same rights. You know, my, my, gra my grandmother, who when she left Israel to come to the United States in the 70s uh, for work, she remembers going past the swing pools and said, no Jews allowed, no Jews, no dogs, no Jews, no, no blacks, no dogs. It was the same type of situation. And so as a result of that, they, a lot of Jews felt like they, were, they needed to march alongside people of color in getting uh, the equality that they felt like everybody deserved. The problem is that after that, uh, after the Civil Rights Act and uh, all the different changes, legislative changes, the United States to kind of put uh, barriers around legal racism 
in the United States, then Jews were able to go up, right? Because now it's not an issue of explicit, right, legal racism. It was an issue of implicit bias. And so just like Jews were allowed to escalate in European societies to varying degrees as a middleman, Jews were able through the skills that we had, through the ability to organize collectively to move up in the American society. But now just like how the serfs, you know, in Europe looked at the situation in, uh, in the Middle Ages in European society and said, okay, look, these are just Jews manipulating the situation. These are Jews, you know, they, they basically, they must have created the situation because they're the ones that are, are benefiting the most right? At least in the way that they're perceiving it. Likewise, people that are defined as underclass in a racist society in America look at Jews that move up and they say, okay, this must be by design. And so whenever there's a doubt, there's or at least a question mark about what's going on here, that's when the popular, the populist anti-Semites come in and give a resounding answer. Yes, exactly. That's what these Jews are doing. In, in Iberian Spain, leading up to the, or during the Inquisition and then leading up to the expulsion, it was people like Torquemada who came and said, yes, exactly. The Jews made it like this. They made it so that they could be this middleman in which they benefit off the backs of the Christian masses, right? And in, and in the United States right now, it's people like Farrakhan um, and, you know, Tom Metzger from the Ku Klux Klan that will come and say, yes, exactly. These are, this is what the Jews have done in America. They're trying to do this to benefit on the backs of the, of the people of color who are suffering at the bottom or of, or of the white worker, right? In the words of like the, of the Klan and the skinhead types. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the Jews and the civil rights movement because there were so, so many instrumental figures, uh, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel being one famous example. Um, I think that, yeah, I mean, the fact that Jews are successful because we work together, it's actually something that Kanye West even pointed out. It, it, obviously, he's bipolar and he has he's going through stuff. But if you listen to kind of the core of what he was getting at was he was jealous. He was upset that, you know, his people don't work together to help each other when it comes to like getting the right contracts or getting the right whatever it is that he feels like he was kind of um, hurt or burned by certain Jews. But the truth of the matter is, he's basically admitting that some people just aren't prepared to do business properly, and Jews are. So we should really think like the Jews. We should be more like the Jews. Um, and again, I'm not, you know, saying that the. I'm sure there's terrible Jews out there who, you know, are wronging people in, in Hollywood or lawyers or whatever it is. But the fact is that there is this idea that, you know, it comes from a little bit of jealousy where they feel like, you know we work together and we're not we're not looking to help others we're just looking to help ourselves so um how do you feel about that so there's a fine line between philo-semitism and anti-semitism right philo-semitism this idea that the that jews are something to be admired because of our culture because of our community etc cetera, etc cetera. and the anti-semitism which says jews are to be hated or to be feared because of their community, because of their culture, because of their identity, et cetera, et cetera. And so when, when the rapper formerly known as Kanye West started expressing all of his opinions about the Jewish community, it was like a very clear you know, demonstration of this, of this strange relationship between the two. In that on the one hand, he was saying, oh, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm jealous of the Jewish people. But at the same time, he's saying these, you know, it's, it's the Jewish media who's responsible for all of this, right? So at the same time, he's saying, Jews, you know, could honestly work together and move up and we could do the same thing. Uh, but at the same time, he's saying the Jewish media is trying to keep everybody else down, right? So there's this kind of, there's this accusation 
uh, that Jews are, aren't, aren't just succeeding because we, we have these, you know, communal structures and, and traditions and identities that helps us move up, but, but we're also succeeding because we are manipulating, right? We're, we're manipulating people. We kind of, we're, we're conspiring to keep other people down. And that's, that's what's so dangerous about this trope, because whenever philo-Semitism becomes anti-Semitism, it's expressed in that language. And that's what leads to a Cossack massacre. That's what leads to a, uh, you know, a Holocaust, to an inquisition. Um, and we're, we're, we're dangerously close to something like that uh, happening in North America. Um, I'm not saying there's gonna be a Holocaust in North America, but I'm saying, but something like that type of, you know, widespread anti-Semitism, um, that's what we're seeing right now. Um, and so I think that as Jews, we need to be looking at the strong aspects of our identity. We don't need to be apologizing for the fact that we value community and that we, you know, and we value education and we want to work together, but also we should be, have no problem in saying, hey, we see that there have been efforts in other communities, other minority communities in the West to move up and that they've been thwarted by uh, bad actors in the government. For example, you know, the, the Black Panthers is, is one example of, you know, an African-American movement to organize and to give free education and to create business structures, which was then thwarted by the FBI through Cointelpro, right? And so we can call those things out. And there were Jews that actively called that out and that helped support Black Panthers in their fight for racial justice and equality in America. Um, so the idea that Jewish people are, are successful because, you know, we fight for our success. That's something which is, is praiseworthy and that we should see is to create partnerships with other minority groups. Uh, but at the same time, we're not going to allow for our community to be demonized um, and for us to feel like we need to apologize for our success. We just need to be proud about what we've accomplished, but also unapologetically call out uh, the very real anti-Black racism um, and racism in general, which keeps other groups down because of uh, of their, you know, ethnic identity uh, and racial identity in the country, which has a, a pretty nasty history of uh, anti-Black racism and anti-Indigenous racism. So talking about racism in America, um, Joe Rogan recently made a comment. I don't think he's an anti-Semite, but he made a comment about, you know, kind of defending Elon Omar's comment about um, it's all about the Benjamins. And he's like, yeah, Jews... Jews love money. Don't tell me Jews don't love money. They love money the way my Italian people like pizza. Um, again, it's obviously an anti-Semitic trope. And he's a comedian, so there's kind of that he can get away with certain things. And he maybe he means it half-jokingly. Um, but at the same time, if we, I kind of get the feeling like in America, because of what we see on campuses and anti-Semitism is becoming acceptable in the media, we start feeling like uh, Jews start feeling like everything is an attack. And then when we start kind of crying wolf, that this is anti-Semitism, that is anti-Semitism, that seems kind of also counterproductive because then when it's actually real anti-Semitism, nobody's paying attention. But what do you what do you think? How do we respond to like, you know, um these kind of uh uh microaggressions, so to speak, against Judaism? This is a very difficult issue, right? Because as, as somebody that I'm personally a fan of comedy, I like to laugh, I like to watch good stand-up, and I like to watch, you know. Uh, film that specifically plays on some of these kind of more sensitive subjects uh, for a comedic effect. Uh, but at the same time, I recognize that these types of ideas, um, negative ideas about certain groups proliferate in those spaces. And when they're not contextualized and done well, they can be very dangerous um, because it's very easy to slide from, from you know, humor to ridicule 
to uh, tar and feathering and demonizing an entire community. Um, and the problem with like, as I heard the joke and then I was like, okay, I understand. He's like kind of stepping into his, uh, his stand-up routine because a lot of people don't know that Joe Rogan's like a stand-up comic in addition to a podcast host and that's kind of that's part of what's problematic because he's he does both sometimes he's serious sometimes he's not um but specifically there you know it doesn't have it doesn't have any sense of appreciation for the fact that unlike a stereotype about Italians in pizza Jews get killed and have been killed and are getting beaten right now because of this idea of our relationship, an unhealthy relationship with money, mm -hmm. right? And so when people of color in America, and I'm saying this as a person of color that lived in America, I know that when I'm talking about and I'm criticizing the stereotypes in America that describe people that look like me as inherently criminal, people mm -hmm. understand that when somebody then makes a joke about that, when Dave Chappelle makes a joke about black criminality, Right. He understands that most of his audience has an appreciation for the fact that stereotyping people of color as criminal leads to police brutality, leads to, uh, you know, an unfair relationship uh, and abuse in the criminal system. Right. When people talk about Jews and money, most of the society doesn't make the connection. They're like, okay, yeah, Jews love money. What's the big deal? It's like it's like Italians loving pizza, or you know, or or you know, Hispanic people liking spicy food, right? Like, no, 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 it's not the same thing, right? We have a history of being demonized and attacked and murdered because of this concept of us having an unhealthy relationship with money. And so, when people talk about that, they should express that they have an appreciation for this, right? And we're not feeling that right now, and that's why we're so triggered by it. Yeah, I mean, I, I was kind of triggered. Like, I feel like Joe Rogan loves money more than I do, you know? <laughs> so, so you know, he's worth $100 million or more. Uh, but yeah, you you brought this up about, you know, uh, pop culture. Um, we see this in recent movie, You People, Jonah Hill and uh, Eddie Murphy. Um, there is a show on Netflix, uh, My Unorthodox Life, which is these it's Jewish people who kind of just kind of, they try, they're every, the whole point of the show is to make Judaism look bad. Um, so we're seeing this and there's so many opportunities that's what's frustrating to show like the good side of being jewish and judaism that like i feel like jonah hill had a great opportunity in his movie to kind of just you know get rid of these negative stereotypes especially in such a heated time and he just totally botched it and maybe that i'm sure he did that on purpose but I, i'm wondering you know what you think about that and what what exactly can we do in media because media is such a powerful tool today with with uh, you know Instagram and and all these social media platforms. So what do you think we can do there? So this in and of itself could be an entire episode, but I think that you know one of the things that really stood out to me when I watched you people is on the one hand you have a Jewish character who is obsessively taking care of his shoes. Right. Making sure that he's not creasing them, making sure that they're clean, you know, a, a, a type of relationship with his shoes and aspects of what that represents to a culture he appreciates that is more than halachic. Right. It's like he's following the strictest interpretation of the halacha of how to keep his shoes clean and looking fly. Right. Mm -hmm. And the reason why he does it is because he sees a value in a beauty in black culture, right, in hip hop culture. At the same time, the same character doesn't even have the, you know, doesn't have the, enough of a care to wear a kippah, to wear a yarmulke when he goes to synagogue on Yom Kippur, 
right? And the reason why the implicit message is that this individual does not see beauty and, and worth and value in Jewish culture, yeah. in Judaism. And in a certain way, this is representative for a certain population of Jews in the, in the United States, right? And in, and in the English-speaking world and in the Jewish world in general. And that we've lost this, this relationship with the, the beauty of Judaism, with what it, what it has sustained our ancestors for thousands of years and what got us to this point. And what was so problematic about the film to me as a Jew, and I'm not, this isn't even getting into the anti-Semitism of it, is that there isn't, a there isn't a single Jew in the film with a strong Jewish identity to act as a counterweight, right? To highlight the absurdity and of this of of the the Jews' behavior and ideas and sense of self in the film, that would be funny, right? There's a way to do that for a lot for people that are familiar of the film Boys in the Hood, right? There's this character who's a Muslim in that film, and he's I, he's highlighting the absurdity and the shallowness of his fellow uh, you know African American sense of self and identity and spirituality by him being a strong anchored person. And so this could be something which we could do for the future, right? Anybody who's involved in media, in content creation, in film, in TV, we can, you can have characters which have this kind of caricature Jewishness, that have this shallow sense of self and identity, because it's, it's, that does represent some Jews, but it doesn't represent all of us. In order for us to move to a place where we can be grounded in our identity, where we can see the beauty not only in ourselves and our culture, but the beauty and the value of other identities and other cultures, we need to have those characters which anchor us, which connect us to something bigger, which to something deeper. Um, and you know, a lot of people aren't ready for that conversation because it brings us into what is our relationship to Israel and what is our relationship, you know, to to the, the you know Middle Eastern identity in general and who are the Jewish people? Are we ethnicity? Are we religion? These are difficult conversations, but it's conversations that we need to have. And and like you know, one part that really just annoyed me was like it was they were leaving shul on Yom Kippur and then like there's like this uh there's a doctor who's like a molester or something and then there's a and that's like acceptable like what is that that's crazy and then and then later on when they're talking she's like my I my father's a podiatrist and his father's a podiatrist and his father was a podiatrist like that, that's not true like that doesn't that's not a thing you know so I feel like they're they exaggerated so much of the Jewish side but not not the other side and not that I want them to exaggerate the other side but like you said have some kind of balance where you show, you know, like there are, you know, there are wacky Jews and there's normal Jews also. Like there's not, that, that's where I feel like it's lacking. Like you, you, you said it, there's not, there isn't that, um, you know, grounded kind of Jew who can be like the exemplar for, for the proper way to be, proper way to behave. So I, I appreciate the point that you made there. So uh, is regarding Zionism and whether Zion, anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. That's number one. Number two is whether the the um, the Haredi Jews in Israel they have this kind of approach towards Zionism that you know Hashem will drop the you know Beit Hamikdash from the heavens and He will fight our wars for us and will you know Mashiach has to kind of happen um, you know in a, through Eliyahu Navi and all these miraculous ways, but. If we look at the Torah, we don't see that happening ever. Hashem doesn't fight our battles. You know, Yeshua and Kalev, they went and they spied out the land and they had some type of strategy and there's conquest and there's, you know, people die and and it ha everything happened very naturally. And, you know, they celebrate something like Hanukkah. These Haredi Jews, they celebrate Hanukkah, which is 
basically what Zionism is in a way. You know, you're celebrating kind of a, a group of people who fought to preserve the land of Israel and, and reclaim the land. So there's like this cognitive dissonance that going on over there. Um, how do we kind of educate the the Jews who aren't on board as well uh, with the Zionist idea? So I'll start off with the is anti-Zionism, anti-Semitism, the part one of that, and then hopefully segue into the uh, the sugya, the question, the larger issue of how we can bring the broader Jewish world and specifically Haredim on board with the idea of being active participants in uh, in nevoah, in uh, prophetic history, right? Um, so anti-Zionism, broadly speaking, is anti-Semitism. Are there small examples in which it's not? Yes, and that's usually in the context of Jews being anti-Zionist, particularly Torah-observant Jews, um, and thinking that their anti-Zionism is justified by a theological understanding of the Torah or the Talmud. Um, but in the general trend of how anti-Zionism manifests on college campuses, in uh, politics, in Europe, uh, in the United States, and throughout the world, 99% um, of the time, it's anti-Semitism. Um, and this is part of what my fear is for what we're seeing unravel right now in uh, the United States, um, and that what we already saw happen in the UK, and then we're starting to see spread to other parts of the world, is that the, what makes the nations, and I'm speaking very broadly on purpose, uncomfortable with Jews presently isn't so much our religious identity. In previous iterations of anti-Semitism, what made the Jews such an uncomfortable part of the landscape was the fact that we had a religious tradition, that we had a spiritual orientation, which defied the norm, right? In a Christian society or a Muslim society, we stood out for various reasons, whether it was our, for our moral standards, whether it was for our, our ritual traditions, uh, various things were not acceptable in those societies. And as a result, we had to experience things like an inquisition, where we had to denounce our connect our relationship to the Jewish faith, to the Jewish religion, in order to be accepted members of society. Um, in between, there was a whole uh, chapter about the Jewish quote-unquote race. We'll skip that. But right now, what we're dealing with is an uncomfortable relationship with Jewish nationhood, with Jewish peoplehood. And so what we're seeing is that anti-Zionism requires Jews to denounce their relationship to the Jewish peoplehood, to the Jewish nationhood, in order for them to be accepted members of society. Um, and this is what we're seeing happening right now before our eyes um, across, the, across the West. They're saying that if you want to be a part of polite society, if you want to be a part of our state, you have to denounce your relationship with the Zionist project, i.e. Uh, the return of Jewish peoplehood to history, um, and the Jewish National Project. Um, so that's why anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. Now, that concept of a return to Jewish peoplehood, a return to Jewish uh, statecraft, that is something that it took a while for the Jewish world collectively to get back on board with, even though it was something which we understood in our collective consciousness that, yeah, we are people, yeah, we are a nation, but does that mean necessarily that we have the right to be involved in statecraft? Does that mean that we have the right to be able to return to our homeland in mass and to actively um, return the exiles and reestablish a Hebrew government and and you know Beit Hamikdash, a uh, a temple, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? This is a process. In order for us to understand why it is that the Haredi sector has such a problem with this. Uh, we have to understand what happened to our people throughout history. Mm -hmm. You know, we were a 
living, breathing, organic, natural people living in our ancestral indigenous homeland for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. And the when we were confronted with colonial imperial powers, we fought against that tooth and nail in various revolts and revolutions. The problem is, is that after repeated times of being smashed, of our civilization being almost completely obliterated, we had to come up with a theological answer for that. And the answer that many different groups in our places of exile came up with was that we cannot be active in this process of being a nation right now. That we have to leave it all up to Hashem. We have to leave it all up to God to return and to redeem us. And so this resulted in the mythologizing of things that up until that point were very practical matters for us. The idea of having a government that was run by Jews according to Jewish principles and Jewish ethics was something which was implicit. And all of a sudden that became mythologized and we're like, we don't know exactly how that looks. The idea of returning to exiles became something which was mythologized to the point that we said, okay, we don't know how we can return and we don't know even if everybody's going to return. And we're still confronting that in various ways and how we relate to the 10 northern tribes, descendants of the 10 northern tribes in the various places of their dispersal. Because some people say, oh, no, no, they're not a real historical people. No, they're historical people, just like we're historical people. And we have to be able to come with practical answers on how to deal with the current dilemmas facing these populations and how they relate to us. With the, with the Third Temple today, the Jewish society in Israel is conflicted. Is the temple something which is just a mythological kind of idea, idea or principle? Or is it an actual physical? building and movement institution in which requires the participation uh, of the nation um, and some type of consensus in order for us to move forward. Um, and so all of this type of mythologizing of this, this idea that the Jewish people aren't an organic part of history with, you know, a relationship to politics and state building and, and community building and, uh, and military and all these things that any nation needs is something which it took a very long time for us to get to that point and right now it's getting taking a very long time for us to get back to our natural state um and in terms of what we can do in getting our people on board with this first of all is explaining this process because in the same sense that other nations were exiled and and colonized we were exiled and we were colonized and once you know that you've had to deal with colonization you know that you should go through a process of decolonization and so decolonization isn't as sometimes it's used today some kind of you know okay i'm i love my jewish identity and i'm a zionist therefore i'm decolonized no decolonization is a process it's perhaps a what we would deem in Jewish terminology, tshuva, right? It's a return. It's a constant process of you looking at your implicit biases, what sense of Jew, what kind of ideas you've adopted into your Jewish identity and seeing how can I get back to the source? How can I get back to a more Aboriginal understanding of this Jewish concept? Um, and I would, I, would, I would recommend for a lot of people start as a starting point with the Rambam, but that's a, that's a separate issue. Um, but I would just say that in terms of the change of the consciousness of the people, we're seeing it unfold right now in Israeli society. As Haredi populations are starting to be, by, by mere necessity, be more involved in politics, in decision making, um, as they become a larger portion of the population, they realize that we, at this point, we can't say that there's, you know, a foreign government who's going to make decisions for us when you have more responsibility uh, on your plate, you have to take, you have to recognize that all of a sudden you have the power, you know, Hashem has given you this position, what are you going to do with it? Yeah, it's uh, Lahavdil, I don't want to make a connection with the Taliban, but they're kind of going through something now with, uh, you know, now I was watching Bill Maher and they were show he was showing how 
they started, you know, complaining now that they're actually running a, a country with like all the bureaucracy and and the kind of, you know, oh, wow, we actually have to do stuff. It was so much easier being a jihadist, you know, so, um, but obviously we're not making that connection with the, with the Haredim, the Haredim, I feel like because it's a kind of a dynastic structure, which is not really, it's like kind of antithetical to Torah, but where the, the, what the Rebbe says goes, and if the Rebbe died a hundred years ago and he said something anti-Zionist, it's going to be hard for them to kind of shift gears and kind of change their mind and change their approach to Zionism because, you know, even though you see all the, you know, a lot of those rabbis actually perished in the Shoah, you know, they're, they can't wrap their head around the fact that what, what would that rabbi say today if he was alive to witness the amount of Torah learning that's in Israel? Because Israel today is more successful than any version or any iteration of ancient biblical Israel um, in terms of like the, the most of the kings of Israel were corrupt. Most of them, you know, were were um, full, you know, kind of uh, immersed in idolatry. And now you have this kind of flourishing Israel where they're we're top in, you know, technology, high tech, and in Torah study is unbelievable. There's so many people. So, kind of introducing them to reality. You know, like you said, they're kind of stuck in. They're, they kind of see things in a mystical way or in, in a way that is, um, you know, kind of, uh, you, know, you know, they see things kind of magical, like the like the, the world functions in a very magical way. But in reality, if they actually pay attention to what's going on, they can, if they pay attention, they can be blown away. They can actually see this is unbelievable what's happening. So um, I'm, I'm wondering what you think about that. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that we all suffer to some extent or another. Uh, an inability to see outside of our specific moment in history, you know, and, and not only that, when we look backwards, when we look into the past, we have a tendency to do something which is called an anachronism, right? Where we take our, what we take for granted, and we just assume that that's how things were in the past. And, and for the vast majority of Jewish, the history of Jewish sovereignty in the land of Israel, we were subject to other powers in ways that we're not subject today, even though today you arguably we're not completely independent, but but certainly we're the most independent we've ever been. Economically, in terms of how powerful the Israeli economy is, the Jewish economy is, we've never had this, this level of success and, and really driving forward the world in so many amazing ways in terms of technology and economic innovation and agriculture and humanitarian, et cetera, et cetera. Militarily, it is unbelievable how powerful we are right now in our ability to contribute to regional security like we're seeing right now with the Abraham Accords. These are things that, I mean, if our ancestors in ancient Judea, in the United Kingdom of Israel, right, if, if Shimon HaMakabi, right, if, if the Maccabees saw this, they'd be like, wow, amazing Nisim. These are, these are like the revealed miracles of Hashem in front of your eyes. But that's because that's how they understood it, right? That was the aboriginal understanding of how Hashem, how God manifests in real time, in history. Um, and, you know, we have to recognize that at the same time, the Haredi world is going to go through its process, just like the whole Jewish world is going through its process. And they're going to come up with new answers, new theological answers to deal with reality. Because this whole system right now in which we have unprecedented amount of Torah study, which never existed, to their credit, right? They created a yeshiva system and a society in which we have an unprecedented amount of Torah study that never happened in the past. 
Um, and they did it as a response to the Holocaust. This didn't exist before the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. and, and so likewise, we need to say that, okay, this society, which was capable of creating such a unique social structure to support and engender a love for Torah, which didn't exist, an observance of Torah and study of Torah, which didn't exist in the past, they can also, they also have the potential to create a revolution in which they can be fully fledged uh, and participatory members of society. They might not do it the exact way that any given sector might want, but they're going to do it in their own way. And we just need to be in tune to those. I, I think there's, there's a natural resentment towards, you know, the idea that Theodore Herzl, a secular Jew, uh, would be kind of like the driving force behind the rebuilding of Israel after, you know, 2000 years, it's kind of like, it's kind of like in a way, an insult to them, you know, so I, I get that. But, but, um, but likewise, I just want to add on that note, you know, the, the Hashmonaim, the Hasmoneans, also yeah. known as the Maccabees, weren't supposed to be the king, right? They're from Shevet Levi, they're from the tribe of Levi, they were supposed to be in the Kehuna, right? And as the, the priests and the Chazal, our sages, say that this is a problem, but that doesn't stop us for, from celebrating Hanukkah. It doesn't exactly. stop recognizing the miracle of Jewish sovereignty, which is what the Rambam specifically highlights as to why we celebrate Hanukkah. Well said, well said. So I want to wrap it up right now, but I want to ask you one last question about, we didn't get to some other questions I wanted to get into, but I want to ask about your own personal connection to Torah and to Judaism. What, what does it mean to you? Uh, what does the tradition mean to you? What does being uh, you know observant mean to you, Torah? So please uh, let us know. So for me, Torah is a privilege to observe. Because in previous generations where the my ancestors had to hide their observance of Torah, which didn't have access to some of the things we take for granted, like uh, like a Tanakh or, uh, or a Gemara or all these different things which we have easy access to through an application like Sepharia, Right? I feel incredibly privileged that I can study Torah on a regular basis, that I can observe the mitzvot, I can observe the commandments in Israel, right? The specific, you know, uh, interpretations of uh, our relationship to the land of Israel that say that when you're observing mitzvot in, in Galut, in exile, you're practicing for the real deal. And that's in the land of Israel. So even if that might be, you know, an allegory, a metaphor for our relationship, I think it's something which informs the way that I try and live my life every day here in the land of Israel. And so every every mitzvah, every commandment that I observe, every time I, you know, I pray in the morning and and uh, you know and 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 wear tzitzit, all the basic things and eat kashrut, all these things inform the fact that I'm living as a Jew in a period which our my ancestors could have only dreamed to see. And that's one in which not only we have sovereignty in the land of Israel, um, but we have the freedom to study Torah to implement Torah in our daily lives and as individuals and as a nation. And, and into and like the, the Pasuk says, like the verse says, right? Because in the Torah will come forth from the land of Zion to the rest of the world, to our brothers and sisters in the diaspora uh, and to everybody else in the world so that we can have an influence in the way that we want to see. And so we can do a real tikkun uh, olam, not in the kind of negative way in which it's uh, portrayed today, but in the real fundamental way. And that's that a nation living according to Torah, a, a nation that is that is conversant in Torah values and in the halakha can be a nation that can have the desired effect on the world. And I believe that that's our purpose. And so I try and embody that on my in my personal and in my individual life. But I also try and advocate for that on a national level as well. 
Thank you so much. This was an amazing conversation. And uh, my my co-host, Ben Sion, uh, couldn't be here, but uh, he he sends his regards. And I'm sure he would really appreciate when he watches this. Um, thank you for everything you do and being such a great advocate for the Jewish people and for Israel. And, uh, you know, God bless. All the best. Thank you so much for having me. This was a real joy. Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning into the Judaism Demystified podcast. We really appreciate all your support and your feedback. If you want to help us grow the podcast, keep spreading the word, share it with your friends, family, or whoever you think would be interested. We also opened a Patreon, so you can become a patron, contribute any small amount you'd like, which would really help us grow the show. Um, our Patreon is www.patreon.com slash judaism pretty easy to remember thank you again and we hope to keep putting out great shows for you guys